Well, good morning. Welcome to Directional Bible Ministries. My name is Dwayne. This is a teaching ministry that is called to encourage, disciple, and challenge the people of God. Uh, today is August the 9th, and today we will be recording session number 26. Session number 26 in our study through the book of Acts. So, uh, last time we were together, as you know, all of my notes are on the blog here. Um, we, in session 25, we covered chapter 13, 32 through 14, 16. So today, uh, we are going to look at um, chapter 14, 13 through 15, 11. So that's where we'll be today. So uh, let's go ahead and uh, say a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Father, we love you and do ask that you'd go before us today, that you'd bless the reading of your word. Thank you for the opportunity to study it. Lord, I just pray that you'd continue to open our eyes to see things, uh, Father, that are there. Uh, and Lord, discourage us from looking at things that aren't there, Father. Help us to be good Bereans. Help us to discern truth from truth. Uh, Father, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear and hearts to understand in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, good morning. Hope you're doing well today. Um, Acts chapter number 14, verse number 16. Remember, uh, this section of the book, Paul and Barnabas are at Lystra. And, of course, there was a man at Lystra who was impotent in his feet. He was a cripple, and he had never walked. And Paul looked at him, perceived, perceived that he had the faith to be healed, and he said, Stand up on thy feet, and he left, and he walked. And the people saw that. They, they lifted their voices and said, The gods have come down in the likeness of man. And, of course, they designated Barnabas as Jupiter and Paul as Mercurius because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before the city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates um, and would have done sacrifice to the people with the people, which when the apostles, and again, we talked about that, the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Um, of course, this is proof uh, that the crowd was Gentile, as that a Jew um, would never have defaulted to this conclusion. Um, when Jews saw miracles, it pointed them to God. It pointed them to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But so, too, when the Gentiles, even pagan, heathen <laughs> Gentiles, saw miracles, it pointed them to their gods as well. Our worldview is our default. Our worldview is what our mind immediately goes to when we see something. And we all have worldviews. Um, hopefully, we have what's called a biblical worldview. When we see things happening around us, I mean, I mean, you look at what's happening in our nation, you know, um, with riots and protests and things like that, cancel culture. As believers, we see it through the lens of Scripture. We see godlessness. We see this as a result of a nation that has walked away from God. We see that the only remedy is revival. We see the world through our biblical lens. But now when you're dealing with someone who's not a believer, someone who does not embrace the teachings of Scripture, they don't see the Bible through that. They see it as just event after event. We need to stop this to do this. It's a political ends. We have a it's just the lens, the filter through which we see what's going on around us. You know, um, we all have a worldview. Uh, all of us do. It's either a biblical worldview or it's a non-biblical worldview. And of course, Paul encourages them to turn from these vain, vain beliefs to the true and the living God. Um, good morning, Sandra. 
uh, happy birthday to you. <laughs> I hope you're doing well. Um, and notice in verse number 17, uh, nevertheless, he left himself not without a witness as that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, scarce restrained they the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. Now, when he says that God left himself um, not without a witness, that speaks of what we call in hermeneutics, which is you know biblical interpretation, the science of biblical interpretation, if you will. General revelation is, is, is revelation. It speaks to the disclosing of information that could not have been known otherwise. And in other words, it's not something that someone told you. It's just something that you know. Um, in regards to revelation, well, biblically speaking, there's two types of revelation. You have what's called general revelation, and then you have what's called special revelation. And general revelation, and that's what Paul is referring to here when he says, nevertheless, he left himself not without a witness, um, in that he did good and gave rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. He's referring to general revelation. Now, general revelation, by definition, is God's disclosure of himself in nature as the creator and the sustainer of all things. And Biblically speaking, general revelation is spoken as coming through nature, coming through conscience, and coming through history. Um, for example, in, in Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and, and night unto night showeth knowledge. Uh, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. He's talking about general revelation. When a man looks into the heavens, he sees the glory of God. Uh, no man by default, I believe, no man by default unless he's been educated. We can have our defaultometers moved, okay? But by default, when we look at something, we look at a creation, we assume that there is a creator. You know, I... I look at this microphone, I assume somebody made this. I So too, I look at the heavens and I assume something bigger than me made these things. That's general revelation. Uh, in verse number four, their line is gone throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is the bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoicing as a strong man to run the race. And he's talking about how God is revealed through nature. We see God in nature. And like I said, in order not to believe that, you have to be educated. Uh, you have to be educated out of that default and that default being reset. Um, that's general revelation. <clears throat> in, um, in regards to conscience, our conscience, the word conscience is, is, is a compound word, con meaning cone, or with, science meaning knowledge. So we all have a certain amount of knowledge, and <clears throat> it's knowledge that is not really taught us, but it's an inner knowledge. It's, it's just, I know. Um, and for example, in Romans 2.14, for when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. And what he's saying is, even though the Gentiles, the law was given to the Jew, but the law, you know, says things like you shouldn't be killing each other. You shouldn't be uh, stealing. You shouldn't be bearing false witness. You shouldn't be, um, <clears throat> Uh, taking another man's wife. I mean, you shouldn't be, you know, all of that is just man knows that innately in his conscience. Uh, so when the Gentiles, which have not the, by, had not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, uh, they are a law unto themselves, which show forth the, the, which show the work of the law written in their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts, meanwhile, accusing or excusing one another. So general revelation comes through nature, general revelation comes through our conscience, and general revelation comes through history. 
Um, you know, as we look back, we see the fingerprints of God. You know, in Deuteronomy 28, the Lord shall establish thee a holy people unto himself, as he hath sworn unto thee, if thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God and walk in his ways. And all people of the, Lord, of the earth shall see that thou art called by, my, by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of thee. You know, we look back. I mean, even the most secular, godless humanist can look back and say there is something about the Jewish people, something that either causes people to love them or something that causes people to hate them. I mean, you look at um, the nations of the world that have lifted their finger against the Jewish people. Why? Why, why are they moved with such loathing? Um, because general revelation is showing them that God has some kind of special relationship with these people. And God is showing them some kind of favoritism that that we don't like. You know, um, anti-Semitism is on the rise again. Why? I mean, why do Black Lives Matter or other organizations just all of a sudden hate the Jews? You know, uh, why? You know, a general revelation. Um, and their thoughts, either accusing or excusing them, uh, depends on what they do with those thoughts. Um, so this is general revelation. This is what Paul was referring to in verse 15 and 17 when he says, Sir, why do you, why do you, sirs, why do ye these things? We are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities to the living God, which made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all things that are therein who in times past suffered the nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without a witness. He further concluded in Romans 1.20 that it leaves us without an excuse. General revelation alone is enough to condemn us. Uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse number 20, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. We are the things that are made, even his eternal power and his God and his Godhead, so that they are without an excuse. So general revelation. One writer said general revelation is that knowledge of God that is the basis for divine judgment, and no one can escape it. What we do with that general revelation. Now, some will argue that general revelation alone, apart from special revelation, which is the Word of God, the manifestation of God in flesh, Jesus, general revelation alone is enough to save or justify or condemn a man. Now, some will make that argument, and some will say, no, general revelation is not enough. Um, <clears throat> and if a man responds positively to general revelation, God will give him special revelation. Again, you can sit through classes, you can read books, and walk down that trail all you want to. Um, but, um, but the argument is general revelation is not enough. And while it does indeed point to God, it's insufficient to reveal the totality of God and his ultimate plan. And of course it is. I mean, to, to look at a hill, to look at a mountain, to look into the stars, to look within, to, you know, is enough to say, yeah, there's a God. Um, but it is not enough to point directly to that God. It's not enough to reveal the totality of God and, and what his ultimate plan is for us. I mean, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, I mean, they could have stood around and looked and seen these things and, and supposed by general revelation, you know, someone done this. But when God came down in the cool of the day, that was special revelation. That's when he revealed himself to them and said, <clears throat> you know, it's not good that man shall be a gone, be a, be alone. I will make for him a helper. And, you know, that special revelation continued. And of course, there are people who who will argue about whether or not general revelation is enough to justify. Because there is no doubt, you and I both know this, that there are people that are born and walk this earth and die that have never heard the name of Jesus. Never heard the name of Jesus. Uh, no one ever took Jesus to them. But they did have general revelation. They did look at nature. They did have a conscience. They did have their own history. Uh, Don Richardson wrote a book, Eternity in Their Hearts. I would encourage you to read that. It's a, it's a pretty awesome book. And the point of the study is not to go down that road. But, um, but ultimately, general revelation is not enough. 
uh, special revelation is when God reveals himself to men directly in a personal way. It is information that cannot be learned by any other way but through God. And it must be accepted, just like general revelation, by faith. Okay? Um, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 2.14, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. Um, until God does this special revelation, um, we cannot know the specifics of God. I mean, without the Word of God, I mean, by general revelation through history, I can understand that there was a guy named Jesus that walked who claimed to be God in the flesh. I mean, I can, by general revelation, know that. But there's no special revelation there until I pick up the Word of God or until He comes to me and says something. That's special, excuse me, special revelation. Swindoll and Zuck point out that it was necessary as that it would have been impossible for Adam and Eve just to look around at God's creation in the garden and have been able to surmise from that creation alone what God's will and purpose was for their lives. God eventually had to intercede and communicate with them. Um, so the conclusion would be that the ultimate form of special revelation would be the Bible itself, would be the manifestation of God incarnate himself, the living word. Everything I know about the living word is found in the written word. Jesus said, um, you know, in the beginning was the word. John said in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. We have the living word and we have uh, the written word. But that's special revelation. Uh, then notice in verse number 19. And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing that he had been dead. Now, notice that these unbelieving Jews followed him. They hated him. They loathed him so much that they followed him from Antioch and Iconium, simply to persuade the people to kill him. Uh, now, notice it says these were un, the, these, these, these Jews, of course, we know that they were unbelieving Jews. They did not believe what Paul was saying, but beyond that, they did not believe the gospel of the kingdom either. They were unbelieving Jews that followed him. They had a virulent hatred for him. And in regards to the stoning, most people believe this is what Paul was referring to when he gives his testimony in 2 Corinthians chapter number 12. And you'll remember in 2 Corinthians chapter number, number 12, he says, you know, it's expedient for me doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. And I knew a man about 14 years ago. And, of course, that man we believe that Paul is referring to is himself and this event that's recorded here in Acts chapter number 14. The timeline works itself out. I mean, he, he, he's probably referring to himself in this stoning. And he says, I knew this man about 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell. God only knows whether I was dead or alive, but I was caught up to the third heaven. And the Bible does speak of three heavens. Uh, the Bible does speak of the heaven where the birds fly, the heaven where the sun and the moon stars hang, and the heaven that is the abode of God, the third heaven. And Paul says, I was caught up into the abode of God. I was caught up into the third heaven. But you'll notice here, Paul didn't go out and write a book. <laughs> like everybody claims to do today. Um, <clears throat> instead, notice what he says in, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse number 3. I knew such a man, whether in body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows, how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which is not even lawful for a man to utter, let alone write a best-selling book. I'm being sarcastic, as you can tell. Of such a one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. Good morning, Cecil. Um, in mine infirmities, for though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. You know, I find it interesting, as Paul is sharing this testimony in 2 Corinthians about this event here in Acts chapter number 14, verse number 19, that often Paul looked at himself in a very inferior way. 
he obviously was not an arrogant or a boastful man. As a matter of fact, Paul put himself down quite a bit. And it's apparent that Paul felt in at least two ways, he felt inferior. Um, Number one, he felt inferior in his appearance um, because all throughout, even Galatians chapter number four, uh, we read, brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, uh, for I am as ye are, ye have not injured me at all, for ye know how through infirmity of the flesh, I preached the gospel unto you at the first. So Paul had some kind of infirmity of the flesh. And my temptation, which was in my flesh, ye despise not. So whatever this infirmity was in his flesh, they knew about it, they saw it. And he says, and you despised it not, neither did you reject but you actually received me as an angel of God, even as you would have received Jesus Christ. And he says, where is then the blessedness you speak of? For I bear record that had it been not been, had it been, been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. So in Galatians chapter four, when he says you would have plucked your own eyes out and gave them to me, obviously Paul's infirmity of the flesh, it apparently had something to do with his eyes. Um, and it was obviously something that people rejected him for, people fled away from him for. Um, so there was obviously something going on um, with his eyes. Um, matter of fact, uh, some doctors have looked at what it might be, some kind of inflammation of the eye, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, as a matter of fact, he saw himself as contemptible. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 10.9, that I may not seem as I would terrify you by letters, for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is contemptible. His bodily presence is weak. It must be referring to Paul's build. It's got to be referring to the way Paul looked. I mean, his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is contemptible. So maybe he didn't have a Morgan Freeman voice. Maybe he didn't have, you know, a powerful voice. Instead, he said it was contemptible. Matter of fact, he goes on and says in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, for I am the least of the apostles. Am I not meet to even be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God? So Paul was not an arrogant man. Paul was a very humble man. And Paul pointed to not only his inward weaknesses, but his outward weaknesses. In 2 Corinthians 12, as he continues to give his testimony as a result of what happened here in Acts 14, he says, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. So obviously Paul had revelations that were beyond what the others had received. And we know that to be true. I mean, the whole, you know, the thread that we've been talking about here in the book of Acts is the revelation of the mystery which was not given to the others. It was only given to Paul, the revelation and the mystery, which speaks of the body of Christ, the church, the body of Christ. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. And I besought the Lord three times to take it away from me. So the thorn might have very well been physical in that it might have weakened him. And some point to ophthalmia, an inflammation of the eye, which might have been which might have been what he was referring to when he said, you would have plucked your very eyes out and given them to me. In Galatians chapter 6, when he finishes the, the letter to Galatians, he, he signs off in a very weird, weird way and says, you see how large a letter I've written to you in my own, mine own hand. What did he mean by that? Uh, In other words, obviously, I mean, it seems like he's referring to, I have written this in mine own hand. It's so urgent. It's so pressing for me. In other words, I didn't dictate it to someone else. I wrote it in mine own hand, and because I can't see, I've written it in large letters. Okay, I've written in large letters. Now, we're not talking about a John Hancock-type motivation where he wants to be seen, Paul was blind, <laughs> and he was writing in small, in large letters, and he wanted them to understand how pressing it was. And Galatians, interestingly, starts out with, who hath bewitched you? 
you know, you start in the spirit and you think you're going to end in the flesh, you know, uh, you're mixing the gospels. You're, you're mixing the gospel of grace with the gospel of the kingdom, and it's no gospel at all. That's the whole point of the book of Galatians, okay? Um, and then he finishes that testimony in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. And what's his infirmities? What we've been talking about, his eyes, his his, his countenance, his speech, that's contemptible. He says, I'll glory in those things that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In other words, so that when you look at me, you'll know it's God. It's not me, you know, you'll know it's God. Uh, I believe that when Paul walked into a room, no one said, well, that's Paul. I mean, that's, I mean, some men just have a bearing to them. Some men have a presence to them. I can walk in a room and figure out who the leaders are just by observation. Even in a church, you can walk in and see who the people are going to and who's got the bearing of leadership. And But Paul didn't have that. Matter of fact, he was offensive in the way that he looked. So God, Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, used those weaknesses to keep him focused, to keep him humble. And I believe God does the same for us. We have thorns in our flesh that God uses to keep us on our knees. Um, and believe it or not, those thorns can be your strengths. Um, I think the devil can twist our strengths against us a lot more easily than he can our weaknesses because we know our weaknesses. It's our strengths, I think, that sometimes trip us up. Because we, I don't think we're very versed in praying that God would help us in our strengths. You know what I mean? Instead, we are well versed in asking God to help us in our known weaknesses. Um, so, but either way, God, the God used this, even though He prayed three times that God would take it away from Him. God used uh, whatever infirmities that He had to keep Him focused. So, <clears throat> in verse number twenty. Howbeit, as the disciples stood around about him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel in that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch. And what did they do? They were confirming the souls of the disciples. They were exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. Now, now Paul and Barnabas are going back. They are reaffirming these churches of Asia Minors, these churches that they visited, that they started on his first missionary journey. And he is confirming the souls of the disciples. He is exhorting them to continue in the faith. Okay? Um, and notice, he even goes back to Lystra, <laughs> the very place that stoned him. Uh, and again, I pointed out that, that that's the difference between a burden and a call. A burden is something that, you know, I may be burdened about what's happening over here, but I may not be called to go and do anything about it. There's a difference between a burden and a call, and I've had a lot of good conversations with pastors and missionaries about trying to establish whether or not they came or did something based on a burden or because they did it based on a calling of God. There's a big, big difference. Uh, I have a lot of burdens. But that doesn't mean God's called me to directly intervene or God's called me to do something about it. I can have burden for children starving down on the Mexican border, but I'm not going to pick up my wife and move down to the Mexican border unless God calls me to go down there and do something about it. And I'm afraid a lot of people move in burdens, which I believe is flesh, versus a call, which is spirit. Um, many times, not all the times, but in regards to the burden, but... Uh, I believe the safest place for a child of God to be is in the will of God. And uh, the most dangerous place for a child of God to be is out of the will of God. Uh, I can be running around Guatemala, crossing borders between Guatemala and Mexico and Guatemala and El Salvador and Nicaragua and Honduras in total faith that God has called me to be here. I'm not moving in a burden. I'm moving in a call. And I know that I am immortal until God is through with me. God's put me here, and the safest place I can be is in his will. Uh, my grandmother, uh, years ago when I first told her we were moving to 
uh, Guatemala, she, she said, you know, I would rather you thousands of miles away from me in the will of God than a block from me out of the will of God. And again, that will of God is, is finding that calling in our lives. Um, Jerry Falwell Sr. used to say all the time, um, um, something about the call, uh, success is finding the will of God as early as you can in life and staying there. That is success. Finding the will of God as early as you can in life and staying there. Um, my next question here, uh, Paul says, we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. Now, this, on the surface, why would Paul say through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God? Now, if you've been studying with me through the book of Acts, you know that I believe, you know, in my understanding, interpretation of the book of Acts, the kingdom of God has nothing to do with the body of Christ. The kingdom of God is about the Jew. The prophecies, the Davidic covenants, the Abrahamic covenants all have to do with the Jew. They all have to do with a reign and a kingdom, a king and his kingdom. Uh, the Davidic you know, is, is the king. The Abrahamic is the kingdom. Um, and the kingdom was promised to the Jew. The kingdom was not promised to the church, the body of Christ. We are not a kingdom people. The Jew is an earthly people. The church is a heavenly people. Jewish promises are physical. They're earthly. Uh, the church's promises are spiritual. They are heavenly. We need to understand that. But we don't. You know, the body of Christ today, the church, we take the two and we put them together and we conflate them as one. You know, I'm a child of the king. I'm pressing the kingdom. We're bringing in the kingdom. We're working for the kingdom. You know, I'm under... I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm I'm we're under the covenants. You're not under the covenants. Um, the covenants are for the nation of Israel. They're not for the church. And again, this is where people's minds explode uh, because we've just been taught, and we've just we've we've never really purposely studied it. We've just heard it so many times that we believe it. Um, we believe these things, and the scripture just does not say these things. The kingdom of God is for the king and his kingdom, which is for the Jewish nation. Um, so why does he say here, we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God? Well, I think there's two reasons. Because we know that timeline-wise, uh, and again, this is not taught, so people, you know, it's just like when you stand before a congregation, and I've tried this, trust me, stand before a congregation and tell them, Jesus is God. There's almost a, a, a holding of breath because it's not taught like that. Um, yeah, we believe he's the son of God. No, he is God in the flesh. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. We believe that he is God. He's not a God like the Jehovah's Witnesses say or that the Mormons say or the other cults say. We believe that Jesus was God in the flesh, manifest, incarnate, poured into flesh. He's God. It's just not taught emphatically, dogmatically in our churches today. And so when you say things like that, even Christians will turn around and kind of look at you <clears throat> because most of our sermons and most of our churches today really don't teach doctrine. They teach, you know, like I said the other week, you know, eight, 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 eight points on how to have a better marriage. I mean, that's great, but the New Testament doesn't talk much about that. <laughs> <laughs> about that, and really the, the places they gravitate toward to teach that uh, is, of course, in Ephesians, you know, how comparing the, the woman uh, to the church, and of course, immediately we run away and say, yeah, the church is the bride of Christ. No, church is not the bride of Christ. That's not what Paul is saying at all. He's just comparing the church to a bride. He's not saying the church is the bride of Christ. We have embraced a lot of replacement theology in the church today. And I'm talking good, Bible-believing, dispensational 
churches. Uh, we have conflated the kingdom with the church, um, and we've conflate we've we've made the church Israel. Even though we would say, no, 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 we don't believe in replacement covenant theology. We, we don't. Yeah, but you're you might be saying that, but you're teaching that. Uh, so the way it's supposed to work is Jesus was supposed to come. He's supposed to, he came, preach and repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and be baptized for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The 12 were sent out in Matthew 10 and 11, teaching, repent and be baptized for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then they crucified the Lord. And then Peter, who had been given the keys, stood up on Pentecost and said, you killed him. And then the people said, well, what should we do? Repent and be baptized. <laughs> he preached the same message from beginning to end. He never wavered. He never taught a faith gospel. He never taught a death, burial, resurrection gospel. He never taught a heavenly gospel. Okay, He taught an, an, an earthly, physical message to the Jewish people. And had the nation of Israel repented and been baptized like Peter had told them in Acts chapter number 2, we would have went into the tribulation period, which would have culminated with the second coming of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom of God. And that is what Paul is saying here. We must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. Now, the question is, why did Paul say this? Well, I mean, there's only two possible reasons. Um, the first one is maybe he had not received the revelation of the rapture of the church yet. Um, maybe in his mind, yes, I'm called to the Gentiles with this gospel of grace, but the Lord's getting ready to return. The tribulation's going to happen, and then the kingdom of God's going to happen. Now, he may have not received the revelation of the rapture yet, and I don't think Paul received all this revelation at one time. I believe it came to him. Bear in mind, by this time, Paul had not written anything. He had not written anything. The book of James had been written, but Paul hadn't written anything. So maybe he, again, there's no doubt that he seems to be referring to a future physical fraternal kingdom that had been promised to the Jews. So uh, one teacher says, since the revelation of the mystery concerning the rapture of the church had not as yet been revealed to the apostle Paul, the Jewish believers were still expecting the kingdom to come at any moment. And they were. You know, I, I'm amazed when I talk to people about that and they look at me like I'm crazy. All throughout the Gospels, will you at this time restore the kingdom? James and John's mother, when you come into your kingdom, can my son sit on your right and your left? Why were they looking for this kingdom? Because that's what he promised. Repent and be baptized for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They were looking for a physical kingdom. They weren't looking for a spiritual kingdom. They were looking for a physical kingdom. And as they returned to Capernaum and they came up into Jerusalem, they expected at any time for the kingdom to suddenly appear, the Bible says. And then in the book of Acts, chapter number one, their first question was, will you at this time restore the kingdom? They were looking for a, a physical kingdom with him sitting upon the throne of his father David, ruling and reigning. That's what they were looking for. And we forget that. So the first possible reason is that maybe the revelation of the rapture had not been made yet to Paul, and he was still, just like the other Jews, looking for a tribulation, a second coming, and an establishment of the kingdom. Or it could have been just an issue of personal pronouns. <laughs> um, notice that he says, we, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. We can't forget that, God, that Paul is speaking to both a Jew and Gentile at this point. And Paul was a Jew. And Paul says, we must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. The point is that he might have been referring to Jews only in that statement. Because, remember, back up in verse number 19, and there came thither certain Jews. Okay, so he, he could have been just referring to the Jews here. And then in verse 23, and when they had ordained them, elders in every church, and prayed fasting, they commended them. Well, there are no elders in the kingdom church, the Jewish church. The elders were for the body of Christ. So maybe it's just an issue of personal pronouns. But I would encourage you to study that and to come up with your own there. But I think that's why Paul 
um, said, uh, we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom uh, of God. Now notice verse number 23. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed and fast, prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. Now these verses become a bit controversial as well. There's plenty of controversy in the scripture, but <clears throat> understand we must rightly divide the scriptures lest they not make sense or at worst they contradict each other. Okay. Um, so when we look at that, we must we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. Those verses are either contradicting <laughs> or they're just not making sense. It depends on how we're going to interpret them. I'm going to go with personal pronouns. I believe that Paul is talking to the Jews in his audience who were still very much looking to the tribulation and the second coming. Okay? Um, so, um, but the reason this verse is, verse is a bit controversial is in the realm of church leadership. Were they simply ordaining one elder in every church? Or were they ordaining many elders or multiple elders in every church? Uh, because today, the popular thing in the new churches uh, is a plurality of elders. Um, I do know that when Paul was giving instructions to Timothy in regards to elder and deacon, he never used the elder in the plural. He always used it in the singular. Uh, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he must be blameless husband of one wife. But then he turns in that conversation and says, and let the deacons, plural. So Paul, when giving out the instructions for church leadership to young Timothy, always referred to the elder in the singular and the deacon in the plural, which would lead some to believe there's only one elder in a church, and that's the pastor, and a plurality of deacons based upon need. Um, but there, there are other verses that fly against that. First Timothy chapter 5, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. So he uses the term elders there, and he's obviously saying there are a group of elders that labor in the word and doctrine, and there's a group of elders that don't labor in the word and doctrine. So, again, I mean, there's some confusion um, in regards to especially elders. Should you have one elder in the church, or should you have a plurality of elders in the church? And I'll leave it at that. It just depends on how you approach those verses. The word ordained here is kind of interesting. The word ordained seems to indicate that it was done by a vote. Um, it was done by a vote. Uh, the actual word in the in the is um, and they uh, ordained um, to be a hand reacher or voter by raising of the hand to select or appoint to choose or ordain. So it seems to be that they selected these guys, these elder elders in the churches, whether they be one per church or multiple per church. They selected them by prayer and fasting and by a raising of the hand. And that does not, you cannot run off and say that's how the church needs to select elders uh, today uh, because Paul had not given instructions in that regard yet. Neither can you go back to Acts chapter number 6 as a justification and a method for selecting deacons. You just can't do that because the church is not there in that sense. Now notice in verse number 24, and after they had passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia and went, they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Ataliah and thence sailed to Antioch. From thence, from whence, uh, they had recommended to the grace of God for the work which they had fulfilled. And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how they had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And there they abode a long time with the disciples." So here we see a precedent for churches sending out missionaries. If you've ever taken a missiology course, I've taken a few. Um, you know, they point to um, what we call uh, churches 
are the ones that send out missionaries. And those missionaries are accountable to the churches that sent them out. And we see that here because, you know, Paul and them were sent, Paul and Barnabas were sent out by the church of Antioch. And now they're returning to the church of Antioch and they are rehearsing all that God had done with them and how a door had been opened to the Gentiles. So basically they were being accountable to the church, their sending church. Now, some will take this and use it as an argument against parachurch organizations, i.e. Campus Crusade for Christ, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Those organizations shouldn't send out missionaries. They're sent out from their home churches. Uh, again, you know, there's arguments against that. I tend to lean that way. I think the organization that I work for, we are a parachurch organization, but when we send out missionary teachers, they have to be sent out by their local assemblies through our organization. So now the interesting thing I see here, notice it says they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. My first thought is why was this such news-breaking information that the Gentiles are being saved if they were already being saved since Pentecost? I mean, we're talking 15 years here, at least 11 to 15 years from Pentecost. Why is it such news-breaking information that Gentiles are being saved? Because they were not being saved up to this point <laughs> is why this is news-breaking information. Uh, this, is, this is new, and they're sharing it with the church of, of, of Antioch, saying how he has opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are being saved, guys. And there they abode a long time with the disciples. Now we get into verse number, chapter number 15. Um, the dating of this chapter is around 48, 50 AD, which would have been 15 years approximately after Pentecost. Um, and bear in mind, already we've already seen that Paul had proclaimed the gospel of grace for the first time at Antioch and Pisidia. Uh, and the Jews stirred the people up because of this new message, and they fled to Iconium and Lystra, where he was stoned. He then returns to Antioch to report. Now, there's a difference between Antioch and Syria and Antioch and Pisidia. He returns to Antioch and Syria, and he reports all that God had done among the Gentiles by opening a door of faith. And Paul talked about this in Galatians chapter number 2. That whole story is about it, is about... Uh, how uh, Paul had preached the gospel of grace to the Gentiles and how he was going to, he made his way back to Jerusalem to share with the most eminent apostles, you know, what the gospel of grace was. Um, and we'll work through Galatians. You, you can't teach this section, chapter 15, without Galatians chapter number two. So we'll go back and forth uh, with that. And certain men which came from Judea taught the brethren. Um, and said, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Now, these certain men were false brethren that Paul referred to in Galatians chapter number 2. In Galatians 2, 4, and that because of the false brethren unawares brought in, they came in privily to spy out our liberty which had been that we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us back again into bondage. So, so these false brethren were unbelievers. They had not accepted the kingdom gospel, nor had they accepted the grace gospel. And they were saying, if you're going to be a Jew, and understand Christianity was viewed as a sect of Judaism, you need to be circumcised. You need to keep the law. Okay, And he calls the, he calls the guys that teach this false brethren that were bringing in this. And naturally, they were teaching observance to the law for salvation. Why? Because under the kingdom gospel, you had to repent, you had to be baptized. And if you look at the first several chapters of Acts, they were still going to the temple. They were still participating in prayer at the temple. They were still keeping up with the sacrifices and the oblations in the temple. Why? Because they were still very much under the law. And again, people just don't get this part. This was obviously in opposition to the new gospel that Paul was preaching. 
The gospel Paul was preaching was you are justified now apart from the law of Moses is what Paul is preaching now. And this was an affront to them saying that Gentiles can be saved without keeping the law of Moses? You mean they don't have to be baptized? They don't have to be circumcised? They don't have to keep the law of Moses? Oh, no. You know, and that's what they were coming at Paul for. And Paul's biggest enemies throughout his ministry was not the Jews. It was the unbelieving Jews. They were his biggest enemy throughout his earthly ministry. Um, then notice in verse number two, when therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and Sutton and other of them should go up to Jerusalem under the apostles and the elder about this question. What's the question? Do these new Gentile believers have to keep the law? Do they have to be circumcised? Yes or no? And they were going to go up and discuss this with the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. And it says here that they went to Jerusalem at the determination of the assembly in Antioch. So their sending church is now saying, you need to go down to Jerusalem and explain this this revelation that the Gentiles can be saved without keeping the law, that they can be justified without the law. Now, you remember the first time he preached this was back in chapter number 13, uh, verse number 38 and 39. Notice what he says. Uh, is it there? Is it in 14, 38, and 39? Well, it's got to be in 13, 38, and 39. Nope. Was it in 12? I'm sorry. Uh, no, where where did he? Am I in Galatians? Uh, I'm not in Galatians. I'm in Acts, chapter number 13. Where's 38 and 39? The justified, there it is, chapter 13, here it is. Sorry about that. No, it says, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all, both Jew and Gentile, that believe are justified from all things from which you could not have been justified by the law of Moses. That was the first time that was ever taught here in Acts chapter number 13. And he's saying, you don't need the law of Moses to be justified. Now, back over here in Acts chapter number 15, that is the question that they're going to pose to the Jerusalem council as they go down into Jerusalem. Okay? And this, of course, will be the first time that he is going to share the mystery with the twelve, the twelve apostles who were still in Jerusalem. Now, notice verse number three. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenice and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles and how they caused great joy unto all of the brethren. Now, of course, the brethren is always referring to believers, both Jew and Gentile, those under the gospel of the kingdom, those under the gospel of grace, brothers. And again, we tend to clump all Jews, believing and unbelieving, into one and say they all had a problem with salvation being given to the Gentiles. No, the believing Jews did not have a problem with salvation being given unto the Gentiles. It was the unbelieving Jews that had a problem with it. Remember in Galatians 2.4, and because of the false brethren, they were Jews, but they were not believers. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and the apostles, the elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. So now they're back in Jerusalem. They're received by the assembly. They're received by the twelve. They're received by the elders. And they declared all things that God had done. And no doubt, this included all that God had done in their journey through Asia Minor. And more importantly, the revelation that Paul had received in regards to the mystery. This will be the first time that this information is shared with the Jerusalem church. And there will be a heated conversation over this. And again, the revelation of the mystery was that the Gentiles could be saved without keeping the law. And it was much bigger than that. It was the whole postponement of the kingdom. It would include the rapture of the church, all of that. But right now, the only thing that's being discussed is the question, do they have to keep the law to be saved? 
But there rose up a certain sect of the Pharisees which believed. Now, these were Pharisees who had believed the gospel of the kingdom. Repent and be baptized for the kingdom of heaven's hand. They believed that. And they said, it is needful to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. They still very much believed that they needed to keep the law just like everybody else had to keep the law. Well, they were biblically right, but they were dispensationally wrong. Okay? They were biblically right, dispensationally wrong. God was doing a new thing for the Gentiles at this point. So they had apparently missed what Paul said back in Acts 13, 39, all that believer justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much disputing, obviously it was a heated issue. It indicates controversy. Peter finally rose up and said, men, brethren, you know that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now, Peter is referring back to 11 years previously when he had been called in Acts chapter number 10 to go to the house of Cornelius. And Peter preached the gospel. Obviously, he did not preach Paul's gospel. He preached Peter's gospel. He preached the kingdom gospel. And Cornelius believed. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. By my mouth, 11 years ago, I went to Cornelius' house. He received the Holy Spirit just like you and I received the Holy Spirit. And he put no difference between us and them purifying their hearts by faith. So Peter is the voice of reason. And again, I believe this goes back to Peter being appointed the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Peter was given the keys. What he bound would be bound. What he loosed would be loosed. That wasn't making him the first pope. It just means that Peter would be the authority of the Jerusalem church. So he's going back and he's sharing that. And he's reaching back a while ago. Peter is by no means saying that he received the gospel of grace, but is merely pointing out that God was obviously offering salvation to the Gentiles just as he did to Cornelius when he preached to the kingdom gospel to Cornelius. Also remember at that time, all of them, including Paul, preached the same gospel until a new gospel was shown to Paul. Paul, when he first was converted on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, when he, he went about preaching in the synagogues, he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Repent and be baptized. He could not have been preaching the gospel of grace. We're justified, by the, we're, we're justified apart from the law. He wasn't teaching that because he didn't know anything about that. And then notice also Peter says that God purified their hearts by faith. Hearts have always been purified by faith. Works are just an expression of said faith. However, these works could never completely justify. And that is where the gospel of grace comes in. Again, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now therefore, why do you tempt God and put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? In other words, we can't keep the law. And yet we're going to tell them they have to keep the law. But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. And this is the last words that are spoken by the Apostle Peter in the book of Acts. Nothing else is said by the Apostle Peter. And his final words, I find, are strong because he says, but we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we the Jew will from now on be saved just like they are. I believe, now notice he didn't say they will be saved like we are. He says we will be saved like they are. I think Peter recognized that there was a dispensational change taking place at this point. He is recognizing that going forward, we are going to be saved just like they are. I believe Peter is fully recognizing, or at least partially recognizing, that there's a new dispensation going on here. And Peter points to this in 2 Peter 3, 14, and I'll close. Wherefore, beloved, seeing ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found in him in peace without spot and blemish. Referring to the second coming. And account that the long-suffering of our Lord, Peter realized 
that the kingdom had obviously been postponed because it hadn't happened. They were looking for the kingdom. It didn't happen. Why? Because it was rejected. And Peter says, we need to account that the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation, that the postponement of the kingdom is actually offering salvation to more people, both Jew and Gentile. So, anyway, I think we've covered everything uh, that we have spoke about uh, Monday through Friday. I do hope that... uh, You've been blessed by these. Understand that I will uh, continue to, you know, as I finish here, I'll put up session number 26 so that you can see that. I'll also put up the audio study in SoundCloud so that you can see that. And then I will also upload this video to YouTube so that you can visit it there as well and share or whatever the case may be. So anyway, God bless you guys. I sure do appreciate you and those of you that hung in there. Lou Hardin, God bless you. Otis Clary, God bless you, Brother Cecil, Scott, Sandra. It's her birthday today. Wish Sandra a happy birthday. Uh, Thank you guys for tuning in today. I do pray that you have an awesome Lord's Day. And always remember how much the Lord loves us, wants the best for us, is working all things out for our good. Until tomorrow morning, 6.30. God bless.